This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Now, here's Dr. Gloria. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Hi, Heidi. Hey, Mom. How are you? Good. How are things back in New York? They're good. It's just rainy in November. Right. They're good. Well, we've got uh, a really important show today, Heidi, and we're going to talk about recovery from suicide loss. And we've got a great guest, and uh, she's written a wonderful book. Do you want to talk about her a little bit, Heidi? Sure. Uh, the name of, like you said, she wrote a book, and the name of that is Healing the Hurt Spirit, Daily Affirmations for People Who Have Lost a Loved One to Suicide. I love that idea because I am a big proponent of quotes and affirmations, and I like using them myself in my, my, in my life. Um, Catherine is also a spiritual director. She's a member of ADAC, which is the Association for Death Educators and Counselors, and we are also members of that organization. And Catherine is a survivor of multiple suicide loss, so she'll be talking about that today as well. Yeah, we were talking with her earlier before the show started about um, the fact that her uh, friend Bob, who she was very close to, um, I guess the first person that died by suicide that she you know, was involved with and then had a couple of other experiences with suicide, one with uh, somebody she didn't even know witnessed a suicide. So, wow, there are lots of uh, um, things out there, and we're all connected with people who have committed suicide or, or died by suicide, I, sh- I should say. And we'll talk to Catherine a little bit about why suicide survivors feel that they'd rather um, have it died by suicide rather than committed suicide, which is... Uh, well, well, in a moment, you know, you make up a good point because you're saying well, there's a lot of people that are impacted. When I went on Catherine's website, she actually said that out, out of 2007, and it might even be higher now, there are 4.5 million, 4.5 million suicide survivors, people wow. that are impacted in some way, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah it really, it really is. Well, uh, Catherine, welcome to the show today. Hi, Thank Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. Uh, it's great to have you on. I really like your book. It, it is, I mean, it, the, it's affirmations. And uh, you can just dive into it. And it's got a lot of topics um, that you can look at, different things like pain and keeping track of anniversary and deprivation and the language of suicide, and big and small losses. It's got, and you just go to each page has some little nugget on it that you, you comment on. So Heidi and I thought we would look at some of those nuggets and have you talk about them because uh, they're so great. And by the way, toward, you know, in the book also there are things about rebuilding your life and opening your heart to love again and having a sense of humor. And uh, there are just a lot of wonderful things we're going to be able to uh, move through and think about as regards to uh, suicide loss. And maybe I should start out because I mentioned it, Catherine, about um, uh, I know people say that uh, their friends or family member or somebody committed suicide. And I know that the suicide world, our friend uh, Carol Lore, who has, by the way, a wonderful site. I don't know if you've seen it, Catherine, but it's called uh, A Loss So Great. She's a wonderful friend, isn't she, Heidi? Absolutely. And she's doing so much to build awareness about um, suicide and signs to look for and also how to recover because her own son, Keith, died by suicide. Yeah. And she's educated us a lot about, about thoughts about suicide. And so tell us why, why um, there's a movement to say uh, um, died by suicide rather than committed suicide, Catherine. Well, there unfortunately is still so much shame and stigma associated with suicide and the act of suicide. And the, the word committed seems to bring up 
ideas of uh, criminality. Like you'll hear someone say he committed a crime or he committed a felony. Also, it links to mental illness. You'll hear people say, oh, he was committed to a mental institution. So suicide survivors over the years, I would say particularly within the last 10, 11, 12 years, have become very sensitive to the lexicon or the words we use to apply to our loss. So people have decided mostly that they prefer died by suicide. Mm-hmm. So, so the best way to say it um, would be died by suicide, and maybe if you've had a suicide in the family, um, also to think of it that way yourself. I know Carol talks to us about um, a lot of mental illness connected with suicide or depression. I guess I should say depression, not mental illness, but depression and people not knowing it and not catching it and, uh, and then having their family members uh, take their lives. 90% of suicides can be linked to depressive illness or other brain disorders like bipolar or borderline personality disorder. Usually it's long-term systemic depression. And what I mean by systemic is any depression lasting two years or longer where the person just can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I was in uh, running a group um, last week uh, with uh, people who'd had children die, and uh, everyone went around and talked about how their child had died. And when we got to one couple, they said, the woman said, uh, well, I hear you all, you know, your children uh, died of illnesses and accidents, but my son made a choice to kill himself, and we have to live with that. And I said to her, you know, is that was that really a choice? Um, you know, what about depression? And we started talking about depression, but what a burden um, for families to feel that it was really a rational choice, um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think so when, when you think about it and that burden. What do you say to them, Catherine? Well, I tell them it's the very nature of depressive illness that a person would try to isolate themselves, cut themselves away from family. Uh, with adolescents, you know, they hide in the bedroom, they play music. Um, they, they, and when the actual time comes where they decide to die by suicide, they put themselves in places that prevent people from intervening and helping them and, and saving them. So uh, the, uh, the, the depressive illness itself is what's making the person think in distorted and uh, mind-altering ways. So what I try to get through to people is that uh, brain disorder uh, makes the brain function in an illogical manner. And the, and the people that I've spoken to that have attempted suicide have said that they actually looked at it as a selfless act because they honestly believed that the world and that everyone that they knew would be a lot better off without them in it, when in reality we're a lot worse off without them in it. There's a wonderful book called Waking Up Alive, and it's a study by a psychiatrist of individuals who attempted suicide but did not complete the suicide. And what he discovered during his research was that the suicidality is such a mind-altering state that the person caught up in it can't see any other alternative. To them, there is no other option. And that, that, that's a very scary part of suicidality. It's, it's very hard to reach them when they're in that state. But the people that survived their attempt across the board have said they were so glad that they were somehow able to stop Mm-hmm. 
Well, now I wanted to get into some of the comments that you made because our families out there have have uh, had the experience of uh, suffering a suicide loss. And uh, what about families? What about this misconception that families are going to pull together? Well, unfortunately, many times suicide because it's a complicated loss because it is a sudden loss. In other words, your, your loved one's there one moment and the next minute they're gone. You know, your, your teenage boy comes running down the stairs to eat breakfast and is late for the school bus and just manages to get on the bus, gets to school, and then at 3 o'clock you get a phone call from the town police that your son is gone. Mm-hmm. That's how it happens. It's like in the snap of the fingers. And your whole life is turned upside down. Mm-hmm. And the if you just think of your typical adolescent, like I was saying earlier, they do isolate. They do keep their earbuds in their ears and listen to music when they're sitting at the table. They 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 do show some amount of uh, agitation and irritability. So sometimes it's hard to tell. Are these really the symptoms of suicide or an imminent suicide, or are these just normal adolescent behaviors? Right. So a family can become very easily confused. Well, I was thinking more about uh, you're thinking families, uh, you think family's going to come in and support you. I just had somebody recently at a group who said that uh, her family wouldn't even mention her child who died by a drug overdose, didn't want to hear his name, didn't want to say it, her parents. And uh, she, therefore, was going to go somewhere else at Thanksgiving this year because she couldn't handle it. Well, the loss is so totally devastating that people find that they they can't talk about it. There's so much shame involved. Everyone feels guilt and self-recrimination. They are wondering, why wasn't I there for them? Why didn't I see it? That's what I hear the most often from other survivors. Is she was my best friend, and we talked about everything, and yet I couldn't. I didn't see it coming. Yeah, Heidi, Heidi, you had an email uh, that was connected with this, right? It was an email from a sibling who said that her brother died by suicide and her mother will not allow the family to talk about him because she is so angry about the way he died. He is not allowed to be spoken about at all in the family, and she's really upset because she has children and she wants to talk about what it was like growing up. She doesn't want to really talk about the way he died, but she wants to talk about the way he lived. And her mother won't allow anything to be spoken because she's so angry. Well, the shame and the stigma, this all goes back very early, all the way back to the Middle Ages, where if Mm -hmm. someone died by suicide, they were actually tied to the back of a horse and dragged throughout the streets of the village. And the remaining family members were turned out of their homes. Their houses were taken away, their money, their possessions, and they were turned out onto the streets. Wow. You know, I know in the 60s uh, they wouldn't allow you to have a... A religious funeral in many religions if uh, the person had uh, died by suicide. So things have changed. Talk a little bit about suicide notes. Uh, we, You know, there's supposed to be a suicide note, right? And everybody wants to know what it said and why. There really is a, a big mythology surrounding the suicide note. It really only occurs in, say, 10 to 20 percent of the cases of suicide. So people often feel, why didn't they leave me a note? Why didn't they explain what was going on? But someone who is thinking of suicide or contemplating suicide is usually in so much psychic pain, they don't have the wherewithal to sit down and actually write a cogent letter explaining how they feel. If they write anything at all, it's usually, you know, Susie can have my dog, I'm leaving my car to Ben, uh, or my typewriter to my brother, 
that type of thing. They're usually more uh, house cleaning type letters than they are explanations. That is so interesting because I would have thought that if you would have asked me, I would have said 90% of people leave suicide notes and they explain why they did it. Wouldn't you think, Heidi? Absolutely, and that people were relieved once they got the notes, they understood it more. And it sounds like that's not the case. It just leaves a lot more questions. Not at all. What, what, what gets left behind is this huge silence and just endless questions. The everlasting why. Mm-hmm. What do you do with the everlasting why? What do you recommend to people? Well, because the person dies so suddenly and you're not offered any type of closure, sudden death is so debilitating because not that any death is a good death, but if, let's say, someone you know is dying of cancer and they're in hospice, you at least have that option of going to visit them. You can hold their hand. You can tell them what they mean to you. You can tell them that, they, that you love them. And unfortunately, with suicide, we, it's like a savage one-sided conversation. The person's there one minute and gone the next, and we have no say, absolutely no say, in what happens. So talk about, uh, let's get on to rebuilding your life. What do you do when you've had a suicide? What's the number one thing that you would recommend to people out there who have early and maybe somebody uh, has killed themselves in the last three or four months? Well, I can uh, tell you what I did because uh, in the beginning when I, when I lost my friend Bob, I was actually the, I didn't cope. I was really the poster child for what not to do. And how did Bob die? Bob's suicide was very violent and it was very sudden. And it was extremely traumatic for me. But I had no coping skills. Instead, I isolated, and that made my situation even worse. And I was a stuffer. I used to stuff all my feelings so I wouldn't have to feel them. Just like a trash compactor, if you can imagine. But, you know, even a trash compactor has to be emptied now and again or it will explode. And I can remember one day driving to work and parking my car in the parking lot and sitting behind the steering wheel and just clutching my pocketbook and sobbing. I mean, I was actually hunched over the steering wheel. I could not get out of the car. And I thought I would never be able to stop crying. And it was only maybe 20, 30 paces to the door of the office building, but I couldn't do it. And I realized at that moment I could no longer function, and I knew I was in really big trouble. And I became very close to becoming an agoraphobic. I did not want to leave my house. I felt very unsafe. I was overcome with anxiety attacks on probably a daily basis. And then um, I had what we call in suicide loss recovery the gift of desperation. Now, why would I call desperation a gift? It's because it forced me out of my isolation. I always had this feeling I had to be 100% self-sufficient. But in this case, I was drawn to my knees. You know, I had to ask for help. So, so this, is, it might, this might also be what we would call a turning point, too. I like that, the gift of desperation and the turning point that brought you. Yeah. So you got to your knees? And that's when my healing process truly began. I knew I could not do this alone. And that's at the point where I was able to find a qualified bereavement therapist. And the reason I emphasize the word qualified is that uh, you really need a therapist who is well-versed in treating people who have lost someone suddenly and traumatically. So tell us, um, how long was it before you reached this point of desperation? I think our audience wants to know, where am I? It took it took me almost two years. Okay, and so so you had you had this turning point. You found yourself a therapist, and then you talk about rebuilding your life. Uh, in and you have little sections in here about rebuilding your life. But talk a little bit about being your own shaman because I really like that. Oh well, part of being your own shaman is reigniting your intuition. 
and learning to trust that still small voice inside of you that's telling you what you need and what, what you should try and find for yourself. And that includes creating a safety net. And a safety net is it's actually a, a net of people who are qualified to help you in times of crisis. So I found myself a therapist that I trusted. I joined a suicide survivor support group. I started having coffee and going out for ice cream with friends who were also survivors from that same group. And I started getting involved in suicide survivor outreach programs. For example, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has a patchwork quilt for every state in the United States. And you can build your own patch with the picture and name of your loved one and sew it onto the quilt. And there's also a national quilt. So there are all types of activities that I felt I could get involved with that helped me honor my loved one's name and his memory. Remembering them in different ways and and letting the world know about them. What a great thing. And your book is wonderful, The Healing the the Hurt Spirit. And how can people get a hold of it? They can order the book through CompassionBooks.com. Their number is 1-800-970-4220. And it's a wonderful book, and I would highly recommend it. I'm certainly going to give it to a family that I know uh, who have just lost someone to suicide. It's The affirmations are just really neat. They're short. They're, you know, probably a couple of paragraphs long, and it just it covers uh, wonderful things. I really enjoyed your book a lot. And thank you for being on the show, and I'm going to look forward. You're going to be at ADAC in, uh, in Florida. In this, what it, when is it, Heidi, in April or something? Uh, yeah, in Miami. In my, excuse me, yeah, in Miami, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, thanks a lot for being on the show today, and uh, thanks for all the work you're doing for suicide survivors and for this great book you've uh, done. Well, thank you. Thank you, Gloria, and thank you, Heidi, so much for having me on the show. Thank you, Catherine, for helping people get their life back on center after they've had a suicide loss. Oh, thank you. Well, Heidi, uh, this has been a really interesting show today, and I um, really the insights about suicide have been very interesting. I know it's going to help a lot of people and the foundation. I absolutely agree with you. And, and like Catherine said, unfortunately, for some, this is still taboo, and so we need pe- more people like Catherine to get out there and, and you know, offer support and, and normalize this after people have had this kind of a loss because we all need help and support after any kind of loss. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the show today, and please tune in again next Thursday on our website at 9 o'clock California time, uh, 12 o'clock Eastern Standard. You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio, hosted by Drs. Gloria and Heidi Horsley. Like today's edition, all of our past programs are available on demand at opentohope.com, along with helpful articles, videos, resources, and links to help get you through the toughest time of your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Again, that's opentohope.com. Check it out today. Then be sure to stop by next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time when we'll be posting another edition of Open to Hope Radio. Remember, others have been where you are. They made it through, and you can too, as long as you're open to hope.